Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. You're the first one in, last one out, and you do whatever it takes to succeed. Nonetheless, 25 million Americans have chosen the entrepreneurial life because it's equal parts demanding and fulfilling. Welcome to the People First, Then Profit podcast. Join hospitality veteran, photographer, and entrepreneur Don Mamoni each week as he hosts a candid, no-holds-barred conversation with successful business owners and entrepreneurs eager to share their professional secrets with you. Like his crazy Italian family does on Sunday nights, he's serving up a healthy portion of inspiration, motivation, and education, so I hope you're hungry. Now, here's your host, Don Mamoni. Welcome back to the People First and Profit podcast. I am joined today by a titan in the financial industry. His name is Sanger Smith. Sanger, thank you for being here today, man. Hey, thanks, Don. I'm glad to be here. So today we're going to talk about something that's particularly interesting to people that are part of the People First Then Profit revolution, and that's value-based decisions in financial investment strategy. And I think that the reason it's so interesting, Sanger, is when people talk about financial investments, it would ne necessitate that you're thinking about money all the time, or you're thinking about uh, the return and percentages and all those types of things. But when you and I first met and started to talk, it was so refreshing the way in which you ensure that your clients are making decisions based both on financial return, but at times, even more importantly, on their core values. Sure. And that's that. it's, it's not something that most people expect when they show up and talk to, to me or any other advisors on our team. Most people out there I've found have one, a, a, if any understanding about investments or investment planning, financial planning, uh, the extent of their understanding really stops at investment returns, right? So when, I, when people come into my office and they're thinking about hiring me, I'm thinking about working with them. I typically ask, well, what are you looking for out of this relationship? What would you hope to get out of working with an advisor. Almost everyone says something along the lines of either I want to make more money or I want to make sure I don't lose money. Yeah. And a lot of advisors out there go, okay, great. Well, I know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And we know how to do that too. You know, I know how to do that too. I know how to manage money, but there's so much more that I have to understand about the client than what investment, what risk tolerance they want you know, how aggressive they want to be. How aggressive they want to be is definitely something that we're going to get into. Before I get too deep into this and you share too much, I want to make sure that the audience knows just exactly what kind of credible authority you are in this space. So I'm going to read a brief bio and then we're going to dig into all those things like risk tolerance and age and all the things that you talk about financially and on the value-based side. Does that sound okay to you? Perfect. As a high school student, Sanger began his first job at Clear Fork Wealth Management, a nationally ranked financial advisory practice. It was clear from the start that he was a natural in the field, but he worked hard to learn all of the ins and outs of the industry. Celebrating now 10 years with Clear Fork Wealth Management, Sanger is now a managing partner at a firm that manages half a billion, that's right, billion with a B dollars. While Sanger works with a wide range of clients from high net worth individuals to individuals entering retirement, he was especially interested in young business owners. Sanger noticed early in his career that within the financial advising world, Millennials are treated one of two ways. They're either ignored completely 
or the advice they're given is shockingly dumbed down. So right there in your bio, Sanger, it already talks about the fact that you're not solely interested in things like percentage of return, protect money, save money, all that type of stuff. You are already noticing that the people in your business were maybe not being given the credit they were due and you started to focus on them. So first, thanks for being here. Second, let's attack some of these more advanced things that you're talking about, encouraging your clients to make value-based decisions. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me on, Don. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing with people first and profit. You know, that's not a phrase that I I had articulated in my own mind, but once mm-hmm. I heard it, I was like, you know what? That is the way that I, I at least strive to live and strive to operate in my business is to put people first from the people on the team to team members, employees, advisors to do the clients. Right. I and and that lines up really well with what you're what you're leading us to, which is values based decision making, because if my what I always share with people is my role is to help my clients make great money decisions so they can, number one, meet their goals and number two, live the best version of their life possible, because money is simply a tool to create a better life. And so I want to make sure that the decisions that we're making with that money are the best decisions at every turn. You made two amazing points there, Sanger. Um, So thank you for espousing that people first and profit resonates with you. You just identified the first thing that I love talking about when talking to somebody like you, and that's that you recognize the people are not just your clients. People are your team members, your family, other people in your life, and that profit isn't always money. You're a financial advisor and you've just identified that, yes, I'm 100% one of my core responsibilities is to protect your money and grow your money. But profit also comes from what you can use that money to do, like spend more time with family, have quality time with family, buy that lake house that you want to retire in. That's Sanger, you and I are, we go way back apparently. (laughs) I, I love it. We're on the same page. You know, a lot of people focus on exactly how do I get more money? And that's kind of the culture that we live in, which the, the American consumerism culture has a lot of benefits. And, and one of those benefits of a mindset of, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more is, well, you're going to grow. I mean, you are going to grow with that mindset. You're certainly going to grow your revenue. I'm not knocking the mindset. Uh, and I think that anyone who's successful has some spirit of that mindset within them a little bit. You can't abandon that totally and be financially successful. But what you can do is also realize that non-monetary compensation is a real thing and can be just as valuable. So one of the, the things that I get out of that I get out of this career, because like I said earlier, my job is to sit down with people, talk about their money decisions and guide them towards the best choice. Now, you don't get into this industry if you're not at least intrigued by the idea of making a good amount of money. Mm hmm. But the the thing that I really get out of that is emotional fulfillment. I get to actually do something that's purposeful. There are a lot of things out there that you can make a lot of money doing that, in my opinion, are not very fulfilling. And and the people who work those jobs will tell you they're not very fulfilling. So often uh, the conversations that I have saying are on this very podcast of uh, business owners and entrepreneurs and people genuinely do it because of the fulfillment. The money doesn't hurt. The money obviously will help facilitate things, but you just used, again, a a word that my audience hears a lot from people in your shoes, and it's they do what they do, not only to make the money, but for the fulfillment. And I'll bet you everybody listening right now, if you're honest with yourself, you're probably doing something that you do, not for the money, but for the fulfillment. So 
people in the live events industry is an example. And I'm sure people in the financial services industry work a little harder, work a little longer, do something they didn't necessarily need to do. They're not being financially compensated for it, but they find fulfillment because you know that that client made that extra bit of return and they can buy that thing for their son or daughter or spend time on a family vacation or whatever it is. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. One of the most fulfilling things um, that I get to do is un- help people unlock in their own minds that they can spend money. Now, that, sound, that sounds like something that a financial advisor would not encourage you to do. Why, why should you go out and tell people to spend more money? You're supposed to tell people to save money. Yeah, that's true. But most people come to me, they've already saved a lot of money, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? People aren't coming to me because they're broke, right? Mm-hmm. They're coming to me because they're very wealthy and they want to stay that way. So one time, actually a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a client of mine who is, he had mathematically, he's not going to run out of money. Mm-hmm. And he's just not, he has way more money than he is currently spending or even has plans to spend. And every time I've met with him, I've, I've showed him, Hey, look, you're, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. But the, the fact that, and the numbers aren't going to completely erase that anxiety that he has because that anxiety is what got him to accumulate that money in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm showing him, I'm saying, look, you've got millions and millions of dollars here. You're spending less than 1% of it. Uh, What could we do? And I kept searching. I kept searching because I could sense when I talked to him that he was missing something in his life. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks ago, he mentioned something that resonated with me. He said, well, because this is a, he's a single man who lives in a small town. He said, well, you know, everything's good. You know, the job's good. Uh, church is good. Uh, you know, my hobbies, I'm having fun, you know, building cars, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I just don't, I don't think I'm ever really going to meet anybody out here. Mm. And I said, oh, and I remembered that I had done this exercise with him that identified his values. And one of those was relationships. So I pulled that back up. And I showed it to him and I said, look, one of your values is relationships. You're telling me right now that you're missing that part of your life. Mm -hmm. Well, the good news is, despite the fact that you're probably not going to meet anyone here in this tiny town, is you can buy your way towards the opportunity to meet people. Sure. And he goes, what do you mean? Like a match.com membership? And I said, no, not like that. But you can buy a second home in a big city. There you go. And you don't have to move there, but look, look at what, and we looked at what he could afford. He Mm -hmm. basically can go anywhere in the world. And as soon as we had that idea, his eyes lit up. He Mm -hmm. goes, oh man, I know what I'm doing. You know, I know what I'm doing instead of watching TV. Now I'm going to be looking at houses. I got to tell you, uh, one of the things you said was maybe isn't so common in the financial services industry for someone to tell you to, to spend money. I think the core there, Sanger, that's so amazing about what you're doing is you're encouraging them to do with their money, whether it be save or spend or whatever, the right way, which is what a financial advisor is supposed to do. But oftentimes it sounds like yours is based on a different metric, right? Well, if you spend, let's say half a million dollars on a second home, that half a million dollars isn't going to making X percent in your account. Well, that's lost money, blah, 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 blah. But you're looking at it and you're saying, but even if you just spend a few weeks, a month, or a few months, a year at that house, and it allows you to, to find a relationship with someone, it's well worth whatever money you didn't make by leaving that money in your yeah. account. Yeah, because what's it going to matter? You're going to die. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to die one day. And at, at this rate, you know, this guy is going to die with a lot of money left to his, his kids. And okay. I mean, sure. Sure. You can do that, but probably already getting more than they need anyway. <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, I think that what's so great about uh, this concept of again, value-based decision is you can go back to the exercise. You can show them what's in their heart, what's on their heart. Right. And let's not lose part of the audience thinking, well, I don't have millions of dollars. So what Sanger's saying doesn't apply to me because what's what's in earnest is it doesn't matter how big no. your stockpile is. Exactly. You could still be making decisions based on uh, these values. And again, let's not oversimplify it, right? You have to protect your money. You want to save your money and compound your money, but ultimately you also want to spend and save money based on your values. Well, you can, you can, you can simplify it. You can take it down to a $5 purchase and it still, it still has the same impact. So, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned millennials getting a little bit of heat from older generations. You've heard this before. I know you have, everybody's heard it. Oh, millennials can't, um, can't save money because they spend all their, they spend their paycheck on avocado toast. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that? Or am yeah. I? Yes. If you are, if you're broke, if you're behind on rent, okay, let's not eat avocado toast. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but if, if for example, health is one of your top values. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I, I think there are probably some things you'd be willing to sacrifice in order to be able to shop at Whole Foods. That's not crazy. Mm-hmm. That's not crazy. Right. You know, I, I speaking from someone who health is very important to me. There's going to be a lot of things that I'll sacrifice before I start eating ramen again. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. it, I, I would, I would not turn my heat on for a winter yeah. if it meant that I didn't have to eat fast food. Sure. And that's totally fine. I love that you said ramen again. We've, we've all <laughs> yeah. been in that stage of our lives where we've had to, to make do with what we had in our pantry. Everyone's, everyone's been there. A hundred percent. So I want to advance this a little bit. So we've talked uh, quite a bit about values. You take this a step further because you talked about chatting with your clients about the difference between cognitive and conative factors. And cognitive is something I'm very familiar with. Conative meant nothing to me. You explained it to me and I went back and looked it up. So let's talk to the audience about the fact that you go through a process and you encourage people to understand the difference and make decisions based on those two things. Sure. You know, so, so what we do at, at our practice here in, in Fort Worth at Clear Fork Wealth Management is we go through an assessment to help people ident- with clients and with everybody on our team to help them identify their conative modes. And I'll explain what that is in a second, but this was pioneered by um, a woman named Kathy Colby. I believe Kathy is her first name. Um, but it's called the Colby assessment, K-O-L-B-E. It's, it's fantastic. I think certainly for, for if you're a business owner and you've been through, you know, the strengths finder and the disc assessments and all those things, this has to be up there, if not head and shoulders above all of those other ones. But what it does is it looks at your, your cognitive modes, the difference between your, your cognitive brain, which is how you think. Mm-hmm is your conative mode is how you do what you are doing. The interesting thing about this is that once you identify what your conative modes are, they, they don't really change. Mm-hmm. So for example, I, what is that called? Myers-Briggs, the mm-hmm. INTJ thing. Okay. So I remember taking that in when I first heard about it, which I think I was in college, uh, college freshman. 
And I take this and I get, I don't remember, but I was strong introvert. I don't remember what the other ones were. And I was like, okay, I'm an introvert. And it made sense because I would go to class and I'd spend the rest of my day in my room. Mm-hmm. I'd go to the library. I didn't really have an interest in joining clubs. I didn't go to parties. I just did my own thing. I went and worked on a ranch. I was the only employee at this ranch. You know, like I was alone most of the time. I said, okay, I'm an introvert. Well, I carried that with me thinking I was an introvert for the longest time. Then I get into a career where I've got to talk to people. Mm -hmm. That's my job is talking. Mm -hmm. And, And I realized, oh, I'm not really an introvert. And then we get, you know, COVID happens, we get shut down, everyone's forced to stay inside and I live alone. And I realized, oh, I'm a, I'm not only not an introvert, I'm an extrovert, yeah. <laughs> hardcore. So that can change with your life circumstances, uh, with your job, your environment, even the people around you, your personality can change a lot, for sure. Mm-hmm. The way that you process information doesn't, that's inherent to who you are. So there's a lot of different ways that that can come into play when you're problem solving. Mm-hmm. And the reason we focus on problem solving is because that's what decision-making is. To make a decision, I've got to find the problem and find a solution. What's the optimal solution for this problem? And I need to understand about the client, how they process information. Do they need all of the facts or do they need the big picture? Are they somewhere in the middle? How do they organize information? Are they very detailed? Do they like systems or do they not? Or do they want to be unhinged and freewheeling? Mm-hmm. Okay, how how receptive are they to change and new ideas? Mm-hmm. Do they love it? Are they ready to jump at every opportunity or do they want to protect the status quo? And neither, none of these are better or worse than the other, right? Sure. That's just how you are. And the better you know how those po- folks operate, the better you can help educate them on that, right? I think a lot of people exist in the world, just like you're saying, I'm just blank, right? I'm just an introvert or an extrovert, or I'm just emotionally driven or, or uh, more logically driven. But until they go through a process, until someone helps them with that, oftentimes they're either unaware or misinformed. And so by you bringing that out of them, they have better understanding and then you can advise them better. So for example, if you have a client that's totally emotionally driven, you're probably not going to come at them with facts and figures and a tons of logic. You can come to them with the emotional impact of the decision they're about to make. Sure. And, and what's really great to do it for couples because most people cannot guess what their significant other is going to score on this assessment. Mm. I don't think anyone's ever really nailed it. Sure. Um, but what I'll do is when I have couples, I'll go through it with them. And now I know, you know, let's say your, your spouse is, is here. We're going through a meeting and you're really, you need all the detail done and, and, and your wife doesn't, she didn't need anything. She's a big picture. Mm. Well, I can direct it all to you and get really granular and give her the big picture. What I probably do is give her the big picture first Yep. and then go, okay, you got it. And then turn to you yep. <laughs> and let her tune out. And she's going to appreciate that. She'd be very thankful versus me trying, me not knowing and thinking she needs all the info. Yeah. And the way you said that was so brilliant, Sanger, which tells me you know a lot about people. Because if you had started going to granular with him without addressing uh, her, and it doesn't matter gender, could have been the other way around. The person immediately thinks, what, I'm not important? What, you don't want to tell me? But if you recognize exactly how to talk to that person, you can coordinate the way in which you talk to them. So we need to talk real quickly about how does someone determine 
what those values are. It seems like we're touching on it, but I want to dig deeper. Somebody comes to you and somebody says, Hey, I want to, I want you to uh, manage my wealth and help it grow. You say, great. What are your values? They have no idea. What, what do you recommend to people about how they determine what their values are and stay true to them? Sure. So number one, I think that when you're making any decision, you need to understand what's important to you. Because if you don't understand what's important to you and where you want to go, mm-hmm. so your values and your goals, then the likelihood that you're going to make a decision that's not based 100% on the emotion of the moment mm-hmm. is very low, mm-hmm. right? So the emotion of the moment can always, there's always the risk of that creeping in. So I'm going to give a couple of examples of that, and then I'll show you how I actually do this with clients. Okay. So the emotions of the moment with, in the context of financial planning, the one that everyone can understand is the market's down 20% and a client calls me mm-hmm. says, I'm scared. I want to pull out of the market. I don't like this. You know, I'm losing money. Uh, sky's falling. Everyone gets that. Okay. You're scared. I get it. Right. Mm-hmm. You're afraid. Okay. Well, now we're at a point where we're, we run the risk of making a decision that's based out of fear. How often in your life can you point to a great choice that you made that was, that was fear-based? Right. Other than running from the guy that was chasing you in the alleyway. Yeah, unless, right? it's, <laughs> unless it's fight or flight. Fight is probably, that, that fear is probably genuine, but you're right. You're probably on tilt making decisions based on something like fear. Yeah, and, and the flip side of that is um, excitement. It would be the other extreme, right? I'm not afraid. I'm thrilled. Yeah, gotta love the impulse buy. Gotta <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what happens when the impulse buy isn't impulsive? It's prolonged excitement about a new home, mm-hmm. right? People people talk about the impulse buy like it only is fifty dollars at Target. Yeah. No, the impulse buy can be an entire resident. Think about the buyer's remorse from that, right? If you if you're on tilt yes. and you're making those decisions and somebody's not there to kind of clue you in, you're talking about a two hundred fifty thousand dollar buyer's remorse is different than the fifty dollars splurge at Target. That's best case scenario. Yeah. Best case scenario. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we always have the risk. Now we've got to be able to pause in that moment and go, okay, I'm feeling an emotion. I'm contemplating a decision here. Let me take a breath, stop, and fall back on and revisit what's really important to me? Mm -hmm. What are my values and what are my goals? So now how does this proposed solution that my emotions brought forth, how does that line up with my values and with my goals? A lot of times it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. So what I do is, and this is, this was pioneered by a man named Doug Lennock, who's very well known and respected in my industry. Um, And his company called Think to Perform, what they, they, pioneered was what they call the behavioral financial advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, every new advisor on my team is required to get this training. Um, I think it's it's very, very worthwhile. Um, I don't think it gets the credit it deserves in the industry, but what we do is I choose to every single time I bring on a new client, uh, I go through an exercise in the second meeting, usually is when I try to do this, unless geography prevents this. And we go through a list of 50 to 100 values. Mm -hmm. And I step by step have people begin to whittle them down all the way to five. Mm. 
And now when I introduce this exercise to clients, I'm like, look, I know this is weird. I know this is not what you expected to discuss with your financial advisor today. You thought we were going to be talking about stocks and bonds. Now we're talking about, you know, your values. Here's the deal though. Again, my job is to help make, help you make great money decisions. Mm -hmm. I can't help you make great decisions without knowing what's important to you. It's going to be a lot harder for me to do that. So mm -hmm. this is going to give us both insight into what's important to you. So we go, we whittle it down, whittle it down. And sometimes it takes a long time. Yeah. Sometimes it really does take a long time. But once we get to the five with a, with a deck of cards, usually is what I use. And, and that way it's, it's, it's tangible, right? Yeah. It's tangible. I'm not asking you, I don't say, Hey, Don, what are your top five values? That's hard to do. It's it's hard to whittle it down, but I'll bet you it would be harder even just sort of extemporaneously come up with it. So uh, I love the idea of you presenting them with a choice menu. And as hard as it might be, it allows them to know the depth and breadth of options and weigh each one out. So what a great, what a great exercise. Oh, and it takes some, it takes a lot of skill to get someone to go through that. Um, you know, as you might imagine, not everyone is receptive to that idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in, in these meetings. But when I, when I, I, my job there is to get them to understand what their values are. And the benefit of knowing it, right? Yeah. So if they're not on board, you might know, A, this might not be the ideal client for me. And B, they'll understand at the end of it, right? Once they've done that hard work, they're going to understand, oh my gosh, this is going to allow him to serve me better, but it's also going to allow me to be a better a client and investor. Sure. The way that I really try to look at it is at first, when I first started doing it was, okay, my job is to get, I'm doing this so I can understand their values. Mm -hmm. That is set really secondary to them understanding. Mm -hmm. They need to understand more than I need to understand. Yep. Because what, what I've learned in, in this business is I can't ever really tell people the answer. Yeah. A lot of times it's not as black and white as me just saying, yes, do this, right? A lot of times a dozen solutions for any potential problem, but which way we go depends entirely on, on what's important to the client. And you do, uh, it already sounds like an exceptional job of presenting them with all the information, all the impact, all the, um, all the ramifications and consequences and all those things based on contextually, the values that you guys have lined out. So it puts them in the best possible place to make the best possible decision, not only for the money management, for protection and growth, but literally for feeling comfortable with that decision, knowing that they've done their best, knowing that you know them really well. I mean, it really is sort of this euphoric space in, in the investment world. It's not cold. It's not calculating. It's not black and white. It is fraught with variables, but you've done the best job you can to, to sort of systematize and objectify that. Sure. So like in the, the example of a home, okay, mm -hmm. the home homes are what ruin people financially more than anything else in the world, yep. uh, or at least in the Western world. Yep. So let's say that you, you know, I, I go through, you're, you're a client, I'm, in a, I'm the advisor, and we've got a couple of values for your family, uh, security and flexibility. Mm -hmm. Okay. Security, flexibility, family. Okay. And your goals are, well, I want to be able to retire early, or I want to be able to throttle way back. I want to be able to quit my job and start this business at, at, at 50. You know, I want to be able to have flexibility earlier in life instead of just working this job and waiting until I'm 67 to go watch TV. Mm -hmm. 
okay, so we're working towards that. Um, and then family's important to me. So I want to make sure that my kids are set up so that they have a little starter fund when they graduate high school. Okay, yep. cool. Got that. Then you come to me a couple of months later and say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about buying a $500,000 house. Okay. Well, I know you got approved for it and I know the lender wants to give you the money and I know it's beautiful and it has a great backyard and all of that, but show me now, Don, which of these values that lines up with, mm-hmm. does that give you the flexibility that you're looking for? Okay. No. <laughs> Cause now we have, well, now we have a house, yeah. right? <laughs> now we, we it's inherently inflexible and I can say, Hey, looks like it's going to delay this uh, financial independence that you, that you and I've been talking about by a few years. Yep. Um, how does that line up with security? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I guess it doesn't. Okay. Well, but, but I, it'll be great for the kids. You know, family is one of my values. Okay. But look, it means we can't do that starter fund for the kids when they graduate high school. Yeah. And so then we say, okay, this probably isn't lining up for us right now. And we can take a break, take a deep breath and revisit that and figure out how to adjust it in a way so that it fits. Mm-hmm. I love that, man. It's It literally takes decisions that are the type of paralyzing decisions somebody doesn't know how to make and, and it systematizes and objectifies it. And we, we've been talking about individuals a lot, but I know that you work with a lot of, of business owners, small business owners and entrepreneurs. How does this process work differently if you're if you're a business? If somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm a business or a business owner, and I want to go through this process, and I'm I'm investing my individual money with the business money," how do you go through it with them? Is it a different process? Sure, I, I would say that it's well, it's slightly different, but it's arguably more important. And mm-hmm. the reason why is that if you are a client, you as an individual mm-hmm. can only make one person's worth of decisions. Yep. Right. You can only make it, you are the one making decisions. And then now if you're married and you're making decisions as a family, okay, well now there's two people to make decisions. Mm -hmm. You own a business. There are as many decisions as there are that people in that business can possibly make. Mm -hmm. It just grows infinitely. You have 10 people on your team. Well, there are 10 times as many decisions being made as you could possibly make yourself. Mm-hmm. So what are those decisions that everyone else on the team, what are they being guided by? Mm-hmm. Are they making decisions day to day at their desk that mo- are motivated by their self-interest, motivated by their emotion, motivated by their mood of the day? Yep. Or are they motivated by what the business needs them to be motivated by, right? Mm-hmm. And now if you answer that honestly, most business owners, at least if you haven't really handled this and, and got these under control and identified the, your values for your business, you can't possibly expect your employees to be making decisions motivated by the same thing that you would want them to be motivated by. Mm-hmm. So we can go through a similar exercise, but what I share with business owners is that if a lot of business owners want to go in and identify the values that they want their employees to adhere to. Sure. They say, I want you, I want a team that does this. Boom. Yeah. The likelihood that your entire team lines up identically with the values that you yourself, the business owner have created uh, is pretty low. So I encourage people to go through a similar exercise, but with the input of your leadership team, your executive team, uh, the people on your team who have been there five plus years, you know, something like that. You know, your, your squad, 
mm-hmm. and get their input and see what you can come up with. Because usually with the input of others that are guided by the same mission, we're going to end up with a much more precise set of values. And those values act as the, the guiding star every single day at every single, if done correctly, every single second when you and the rest of your team are making choices. And let's not forget that we oftentimes hire people that we hire because we want to surround ourselves with depths and breadths of experience that we either share in slightly, but are different or have different experiences, different skill sets. And so by involving your squad, right, your higher level, your executives, whatever body of people you choose, you're likely to be introduced to things that you may not even be able to come up with on your own, right? No, no business owner, in my opinion, should be an island, right? Or, or dictate like a dictatorship. I mean, they of course have to make the decision when a decision needs to be made, but in a situation like this, man, crowdsourcing, essentially value creation based on the depth and breadth of experience is brilliant. And one of the things I'm picking up from what you're saying is it's ideal to do this exercise in a way that doesn't have the business owner leading it because then they're going to probably have undue influence or impact. Some people don't want to talk the truth to power. Like, Hey, I think it's really important that that's your value, but that's maybe not a great value for the company. Sure. Yeah. And that's doing it the right way for a business, especially the larger of a team that we're talking about is hard. It takes a lot of skill and it takes a lot of time. It's a it's a time commitment. You, if you think, I, oh, okay, I'll just go write five values that sound good. Uh, mm-hmm. What's important to me? Oh, winning. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, winning uh, relationships. Write some things down and then go call it good. You know, we're we're ready to yeah. to to plaster this on everyone's desk. No, it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to work because it has to be precise. You get out what you put in, obviously. Then. In a situation, sure. like it's like the more the more effort and time you put into it, the more benefit you're going to reap. The more accurate they're going to be. All kinds of, all kinds of things. Yeah, you know, one thing I see people do that holds them back on this as business owners is one they don't do it. Okay, fine. Obviously, great businesses do this. They've done it. Coca Cola, yep. they got their values down. Sure. Um, once they do it, though, a lot of business owners that are in you know smaller businesses, they do it. And they're really happy that they've done it and they've congratulated themselves for doing it. Mm-hmm. And then you talk to them a year later and they go, yeah, we did it. Okay. So if I go ask the receptionist what the values are, she'll know. They go, well, no, cause she wasn't here when we did that. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, so you haven't done it. Yeah. You have to live it. Needs it needs to be so ingrained that you can ask anyone on your team at any point in time and they would recite them back to you like that. Cause they're mm-hmm. living them. Yeah. They don't just remember doing the exercise. Yeah. Which is cool because like you said, it takes every decision. And it says, if I make this decision, can I directly relate it to one of the values? If so, great, make that decision. If not, maybe go talk to somebody else. Maybe it helps you decide not to do that thing. And I tell you, it gives you a barometer, an objectification of things that makes decisions that are otherwise hard a little bit easier. Exactly. I'm not saying every single time sure. you make a decision, hey, should I refill the ink in the printer right now? <laughs> uh, well, um, I don't know. That, yeah, that let me go does, check. Yeah. Does this line up with excellence? That's one yeah. of our values. No. Okay. I'm not saying that. Sure. But if it's in your mind, mm-hmm. if it's in your mind, you're aware of it, you're much more likely to subconsciously be influenced by those mm-hmm. than you are by anything else. 100%. 
this was such an enjoyable conversation, Sanger, that we blew through the time. We've had unbelievably great strategic and tactical conversation about the importance of what you're doing with regards to value-based decisions in the financial market. And we've given people tactical ways in which to do it. I want my audience to be able to find you. And according to my notes, that means they need to go to clearforkwealth.com. That's your URL. And they can also find you on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm going to put both of those links in the show notes. I'm also going to do some research on some of the other tactical things, the people that you've talked about and the assessment tests that you've recommended. And I'll put those links uh, in there. Awesome. Perfect. I understand that you're going to be super generous and I'm really excited to share with the podcast uh, audience. You do this often and you do this with individuals and businesses and you've decided that you're going to offer the audience the first five people that send me a message on any social media platform in any of my groups or by email, the first five people that send me an email that says they're interested in going through this exercise of value discovery with you, you're going to do it for them at no charge. Yes. I'd love to do that for, if you're a business owner thinking, Hey, how would I even begin to approach this exercise? I want to get my team more aligned. I'm happy to do it for you. I think Don, what you're doing here is great. Uh, and I want to give something back towards the cause. So awesome. I'm happy to do it. Thank you for that. I appreciate it so much. So I end every, uh, every podcast episode with a quick little lightning round. It's something fun. It's freeing. It's easy. Uh, I'm just gonna ask you three or four questions. You just fire off your first answer and, uh, you ready to go? Hold on. Let me get, I gotta feel like I got to stretch for this. Get in the mindset. It yeah. is super fun. Uh, the first one I think about, because you said that your firm is based in Fort Worth. What's your favorite place to go in Fort Worth? Cultural place, food, restaurant? Fort Worth? Oh, the Kimball Art Museum. Isn't that amazing? It's it's wonderful. The Kimball Art Museum, if you haven't been, you can see for free original art by Picasso, Van Gogh, Michelangelo's first known painting that he painted when he was 12 called The Torment of St. Anthony is there. Uh, it's a work of art architecturally as well. Wow, man, you are a catch. Financial advice, values-based, cultural, telling you. Uh, Okay, so uh, favorite sport? Favorite sport? To watch hockey? Yeah. For sure. To play? To play if jujitsu counts as a sport. Yeah, it does. I mean. Okay, I got to do it. To play, I mean, that's the only sport I'm really playing anymore these days. Okay, so uh, favorite winter beverage? Favorite cold apple cider. Cold apple cider. Cold apple cider is superior to hot apple cider. Uh, You heard it here, folks. You got to try it. Last question is, if you're going on vacation, is it beach or mountain? Oh, it's absolutely mountain. Yeah, especially this time of year. Absolutely mountain. There's so many more things to do. Yeah. I can only sit on the beach for about 45 minutes and then I go crazy. That's, I think that's the entrepreneurial spirit in you. I'm the same way. Like I can relax with the best of them, but I better be reading or listening to music or having a conversation. So uh, I like the mountains too, especially cold weather. I don't like to live in it, but I love to visit it, right? Um, Warm beverages, cold beverages, whatever the case is. Yes, cold weather is the best for like two weeks, especially when you live in Texas. I mean, you live in Texas, it's 127 degrees every July. Yep. It's brutal. And it forces me to sort of relax a little bit, right? If there's not that much that's pulling at me, I tell Emily, example, you know, if we were going to a big city or if we were visiting Fort Worth, we'd want to go to the Kimball, we'd want to go to the stockyards and all stuff. If I go to a mountain chalet somewhere, I'm like, well, I can go walk around that little town, but most of it's going to be reading and listening to music and drinking wine and listening to jazz and stuff. So, (laughs) Uh, well, listen, Sanger, this again, this was an exceptional conversation. I really appreciate everything you're doing. You're a beacon in the industry. I hope that other people take your lead and I really very much appreciate you spending your time chatting with me today. Great. Thanks so much, Don. 
Thanks for listening to the People First in Profit podcast. If you like this episode, and I'm pretty sure you did, subscribe, review, and share it with your friends, fans, and followers wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the show notes for additional information about this week's guest, as well as a list of all the links and resources we discussed. Be sure to visit peoplefirstinprofit.com for a ton of great content, free resources, and links to the People First in Profit community. All right, I'm Adam Wilmore, and on behalf of your host, Don Mamoni, we'll see you next week. Thank you.